Hi. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Graham. I'm one of the leaders here at Vineyard 53. So as you may or may not be aware, uh, we are about to enter a season known as Lent. That means it's Pancake Tuesday on Tuesday, obviously, and then it's Ash Wednesday. Then we've got this thing called Lent. And Lent is the season which traditionally followers of Jesus around the world remember as the 40 days before Good Friday when Jesus was crucified and Easter Sunday when he was raised from the dead. Now, whether or not you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus today, um, you're probably familiar with Lent because a lot of people in our society observe it to various degrees. And it's usually thought of as a period of time to lose a few pounds and get a bit help. Come on, that's, that's the honest truth, isn't it? We all know what happens there. You give up donuts and all that kind of stuff. I actually looked online and found a survey that was taken a couple of years ago for the top 10 things that people give up during Lent. I just thought I'd read them out so you can see the sort of things that people give up. Number one is chocolate. Yeah, come on, lots of nods there. Oh yeah, it's going to have chocolate. Number two, social media. Obviously, that's a bit more of a recent one. Number three, alcohol. Quite come to give up alcohol. Four and five, kind of linked to number two, is Twitter and then Facebook. So if you didn't give up social media altogether, you gave up Twitter or Facebook. And number six, I've got no idea how you give this up for 40 days, school. <laughs> well, yeah, so apparently, yeah, giving up school is quite a common thing to do. Now, I'm all up for giving various food and drinks up for, for a period of time, but um, I don't think I'm going to mention that one to my kids in case they get the wrong idea. But for followers of Jesus, Lent is not just a time to have a bit of a health kick or to lose a few pounds but it's a season to intentionally draw closer to God. The point is not primarily to reduce our reliance on chocolate or caffeine, good as that is. It's to increase our reliance on Jesus. Now, there are all sorts of ways that we can do this, but what I'd just like to do this evening is take a look at a passage in the New Testament from the Bible from which the tradition of Lent originally comes and see what it can say to us today, 2,000 years later, about how, how we can draw closer to Jesus in this season. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will come up on the screen. First, just to give you a bit of context, in the New Testament, there are four written accounts of Jesus' life on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. They're named after the people who wrote them. In this particular version, we're going to be looking at Luke's uh, version of events. And just to, to set the scene, what's happened here is in chapter 3, the previous chapter, we read that Jesus has been baptized in the River Jordan. And as he comes up out of the river, something amazing happens. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of God himself, says, This is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Incredible. Okay, let's just jump into chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Quite a story. There's absolutely loads going on in this passage that we could unpack here this evening. But just to keep it simple, I'm going to focus on three themes. And that's going to lead me to three questions to give you the season, uh, this evening as we go into the season of Lent. The three themes are wilderness, lies, and truth. Wilderness, lies, and truth. Okay, firstly, wilderness. Let's quick drink out. In verse 1, we read, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So, I want you to try and picture the scene if you can. In Jesus' day, the people of Israel had been living under the rule of various oppressive regimes for hundreds of years. In the first century, it was the Romans. Before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, the Persians. Before that, the Babylonians. On and on it goes. And they were desperate for God to send them a savior to rescue them. And now at last, the time had come. The Son of God himself had arrived on the scene. It's all about to kick off. And I can picture the scene to those who saw Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit and heard this voice from heaven saying, this is my son. They'd be thinking, this is it. This is the one we've been waiting for. And a crowd starts to gather around Jesus. And there's a buzz of excitement. And they're thinking, what's he going to do? And Jesus says something along the lines of, I'll be back in a bit. And he turns around, walks off into the desert by himself for a month and a half. It's not exactly what the people were expecting, to be honest. So what is Jesus doing? Why does he start his ministry by going into the wilderness? Well, the Greek word translated wilderness here is eremos. Eremos sounds a bit like a cheap male aftershave, doesn't it? Eremos for men. And it can mean wilderness but it can also be translated solitary or lonely place. Solitary or lonely place. The idea is basically it's somewhere where people aren't. So certainly a desert would be an Eremos, but it could just as easily be a big open field or even an empty room. The point is not the location. The point is the absence of people and noise. In other words, the Eremos that Jesus goes into is the place with no distractions. And if we look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, we see that this wasn't just a one-off event at the beginning of his ministry. It was a regular practice that he worked into his life. And for Jesus, it was a major priority, even when, and especially when, there was lots of other things that needed doing. A few examples in the Gospels. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And Mark 6, 31 to 32, this is Jesus speaking. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So Jesus spent large chunks of his time in this this Eremos, this solitary, lonely place. This was his time away from the crowds, away from the to-do lists, away from the noise, and into the presence of God, his Father. It's the place where he talked to God and listened to his voice. And if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to regularly get into this quiet place, then I suggest we do too. But 2,000 years ago in Palestine, it would have been relatively easy to find a place of seclusion to be with God. It's not quite as easy in 2020 in our modern Western world. And whether it be with phone calls or emails or text messages or notifications on our social media, the fact is we live in an age of relentless distraction. It's almost impossible to be fully present to ourselves, let alone to God. Ruth Haley Barton wrote a book, called An Invitation to Solitude and Silence, and in it she says this, We are starved for quiet. To hear the sound of sheer silence, that is the presence of God himself. So the first question that this text gives us tonight is this. What are the ways that we can spend time in the Eremos, the place of no distraction, to be more fully present to God, and to listen to what the Bible calls his still, small voice. Now, I don't think we can be prescriptive about how we do this. It'll look different for each and every one of us, depending on our life stages, our age, our daily routine, particularly if we've got children or not. We might be able to manage five or ten minutes in the morning with a cup of tea in silence with Jesus. We might be able to get away for a whole day and spend some time in a forest or a retreat. We might be able to do something in between. But the invitation this season is to press into that lonely place. And whatever it is for us, I would offer just two pieces of advice that I found really important when it comes to having some time. First of all, as hard as it is, try and have some time away from our phones. But the number one sources of distraction, it's really hard. But number two, <laughs> this is a big help. Don't overlook it. Do not underestimate the importance of earplugs. Do not underestimate the importance of earplugs. Seriously, they're cheap as chips, and they've changed my life when it comes to spending time with Jesus. Okay, that was the first theme. The Eremos, the wilderness. Let's spend some more time this season in the place of no distraction. Okay, second theme. Second theme is lies. Lies. We read this in verse 2 in this passage. Jesus has gone off into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted, or the word can be translated tested, means the same thing, tempted or tested, by the devil. So, just going to address the elephant in the room, so to speak. There's no way around this. If we're going to make sense of this story, we have to acknowledge the appearance of this character called the devil. Now, today, we don't really talk much about the devil, and that's a good thing. He does not need any extra publicity. But I do think it's important that we at least acknowledge what the Bible has to say about him. The Apostle Paul, who's one of the early followers of Jesus, he says this, speaking of the devil, we are not unaware of his methods. We're not unaware of his methods. The problem is today, in our modern secular society, many of us are unaware of his methods. 
C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure many of you have heard about, the British writer who's most famous for his chronicles of Narnia stories, he wrote a little book in 1942 called The Screwtape Letters. And it's an absolutely fascinating book. It's an imaginary collection of letters written by a kind of devil character. And he's writing to a younger devil character. And he's advising, advising him on how to tempt human beings. And at the introduction of the book, Lewis writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. He is equally pleased by both errors. Now, in our modern Western world, we mostly fall into the first category. Most people today simply don't believe in the devil. We think, oh, come on, we've moved past all that now. That was from an age of superstition. People back then didn't understand the universe the way that we do. And it's just weird. I mean, a little character in red tights and a pitchfork and a goatee beard and little horns. I mean, what's next? You expect me to believe in unicorns? Or trolls. Trolls are real. They're on the internet. But unicorns aren't. Just going to clarify that one. I'm not going to spend too much time on this other than to say for Jesus, for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, the devil was and is real. Not a metaphor, not a cartoon character in red with a pitchfork, but an invisible intelligence that lies behind the visible evil in the world and which is set against God and his creation and humanity. And we've got to be careful here. As followers of Jesus, we don't need to know every single detail of how the devil works in the world. I would agree with C.S. Lewis. It's a mistake to have an unhealthy interest in him. But as we look at this particular passage, I think we see something of how the devil attacks Jesus and by implication, how he attacks us. So Jesus is alone he hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. The Bible says he was hungry. I think that's a bit of an understatement. He would have been physically weak. And what's interesting is that the devil does not come at him with an act of physical violence. He doesn't pick up a rock and chuck it at his head or anything like that. He comes at him with something far more powerful. He comes at Jesus with an idea. An idea. An idea that isn't true. We call that a lie. He lies to him. That is his main way of attacking. Listen to what Jesus says about the devil. This is from John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44. Speaking of the devil, he says this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So hopefully you got the point, he lies, yeah? <laughs> Full of lies is what Jesus says. It's his native language. So as an aside, I used to do GCSE French, and I was quite good. I can still ask for a return ticket to La Rochelle. It was always La Rochelle, no matter where you were in the country. Return ticket to La Rochelle, please. I can still do that. But when I was speaking French, I remember I had to concentrate really hard to think, oh, is this a masculine word or, or a feminine word? Is it un or un? And I had to remember all the verb endings. And basically, it didn't feel natural. Whereas when I switched back into speaking English, which is my native language, I didn't have to think about it. It was just there. It's like breathing. I've been doing it for so long, it just comes naturally. Jesus says when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language. He's been doing it for so long, it just comes naturally. And he knows that if he can plant a lie into our minds, an idea that isn't true about God, about ourselves, 
or about the way that life works, he can cause a lot of damage. You may have seen the film that came out a few years ago by Christopher Nolan, fantastic sci-fi movie called Inception. Anyone seen that? Yeah, got some nods, fantastic, great. It's a brilliant movie. And it's basically about a team led by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's not ever been in a bad film, really, if you think about it. So Leonardo DiCaprio leads this team. And what they do is they figured out a way to go inside people's dreams and plant into their subconscious mind an idea. It's a bit far-fetched. Like, clearly, this is not quite happening today yet. But there's this great line from the main character in the movie when he's explaining what they do. He says this. An idea is resilient and highly contagious. The smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define you or destroy you. It can grow to define you or destroy you. Now, the movie is complete science fiction, but that premise is correct. An idea is a powerful thing, and an idea that isn't true, a lie that we believe, can do us great harm. So let's get back to this passage that we're looking at. What ideas that aren't true, what lies, does the devil bring at Jesus? First one, verse 3, he says this, If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, it would be quite easy to focus on the miracle that the devil is asking Jesus to perform here. He's asking him to perform um, turning some stone into some bread. Yeah, that would be a miracle. Now, Jesus could have so easily done this. In other parts of the gospel, we see that he makes a few hundred bottles of finest wine at a wedding out of just water. And in another place, he he feeds a crowd of 5,000 adults using only five loaves and two fish. So for him to make just a small little bat for himself would not have been very hard. He could so easily have done this. It wouldn't have been testing him that much. But the key word that the devil uses here is if. If you are the son of God. See, before he said anything else, he's trying to cast doubt on who Jesus is. And the way that the author of this gospel, Luke, has set this out is just brilliant. It's almost comedy. In the previous chapter, chapter 3, we've heard this voice from heaven, the voice of God himself, the one who defines what truth is, say, this is my son. And the very next thing, the devil comes along and says, but are you really? 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 Is that who you are? Lie number one from the devil is to try and make Jesus believe that what God says about him isn't true. That what God says about him isn't true. And Jesus does not fall for it. Second lie in verse 5. It says this, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. A little bit later he says, If you worship me, it will all be yours. So I want you to imagine, if you can, that um, there's a knock at the door of your house, and it's a salesman. And the salesman comes into your house, and he's trying to sell you some windows. So he gets out his catalog, and he shows you these absolutely fantastic, gorgeous, beautiful windows. I mean, these are just the best windows you've ever seen. They're made from super-duper burglar-proof glass. You can clean them just by looking at them. I mean, these are just the most incredible windows ever, whereas your windows are just made from stupid, poxy, normal glass that will definitely get broken into in a week's time. At least that's what the salesman says. And you see all this stuff in the brochure, and he says, all of this, all of this can be yours. Just sign here for our buy now, uh, pay later scheme. And there's the catch. This is what the devil is doing to Jesus. Not trying to sell him windows. 
He invites Jesus into this kind of virtual showroom and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all this and all their authority. Just worship me. And there's a really ironic point here because all the kingdoms and all the authority belong to Jesus. At the end of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he actually says all authority in heaven and on earth, that is everywhere, all authority has been given to me, but not by the devil, by God, his father. And the way Jesus got there was not by a get it now, pay later scheme. It was by being obedient to what his father had called him to. And that was the costly way of going to the cross. We'll be speaking more of that in the next few weeks. So line number two that the devil comes at Jesus with is that he tries to make Jesus believe he can shortcut God's purposes. And that's a lie. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. Finally, the third lie in this passage, verse nine, the devil says again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself from the temple. And then he quotes a verse from the Old Testament, basically saying that God has promised that he won't get hurt. So put it to the test. The lie here is that trusting God is the same as testing God. That trusting God is the same as testing God. And that's a lie. God wants us to trust him, but that does not mean deliberately doing something stupid and then expecting him to intervene to sort it out. That's not trust. That's being stupid. Imagine I went white water rafting with my children and it's really choppy and we've got our helmets and our floats on and everything and then suddenly one of my children jumps into the river and they can't swim so after I sort of jumped in and, and swam and grabbed them and dragged them onto the shore and I've made sure that they're okay I say something like what on earth were you thinking jumping into the river like that you could have been killed and imagine they said well daddy you say that you love me but I thought I better test it out so I jumped into the river How's that going to make me feel as their father? I would hope that my children know that they are so deeply loved that they never have to put themselves in harm's way to get me to prove it. So again, Jesus says no to this one because it's a lie. So recap, three ideas that the devil throws at Jesus, these three lies. What God says about him isn't true, that he can shortcut God's purposes and that he should test God rather than trust God. And so as we go into the season that we call Lent next week, the second question that I've got this evening is not, how are we going to fight the devil? Because that's not what I want to ask. I don't think that should be our focus. Now the question is, what lies are we believing? What lies are we believing? What ideas about God, about ourselves, and about the life that we're living are not based on truth? A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What you think about when you think about God. Are we thinking, God's not that good? He doesn't really care about me. If he truly loved me, then this thing, whatever this thing is, would not have happened to me. Those are lies. The truth is God loves each and every one of us with an everlasting love that we could never comprehend. Are we believing God couldn't use me? God couldn't forgive me? God couldn't change this situation? Those are lies. 
the truth is God can use anyone, forgives everyone, and can bring change into any and every situation. Or are we believing the one that tragically more and more people seem to believe in these days in our society, the lie that my life is not worth living? That's a lie. We are created in the image of God, meaning each and every human life is infinitely worthy and precious. So as we're about to step into Lent, rather than giving up chocolate or coffee or alcohol, how about we give up believing some of these lies? Give up believing some of these lies. Okay. So we've got theme number one, the wilderness. Theme number two, we've looked at some lies. The third and final theme is how Jesus responds to these ideas. Jesus responds to these ideas, these lies, with truth. He responds with truth. So, just recap. The devil has asked Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds, verse 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. When the devil says that he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will worship him, Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And finally, when he's tempted to, to jump off the temple, Jesus replies, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if you're familiar at all with this story, you'll realize that Jesus isn't just responding with random one-liners that he makes up there and then on the spot. He could have done. Like, he was that smart. If we look later on in the Gospels, we'll see him debating and arguing with the religious leaders. And he comes out with some of the most brilliant arguments and lines that have ever come from human lips because he was a pretty smart guy. But I think what Jesus is doing in this story is he's giving us a model to follow with how we are meant to combat lies that are thrown at us. Notice that he starts his answers with, it is written. Then the words that he speaks back to the devil are taken directly from the Bible. He's quoting straight from the scriptures. So the point is quite simple, really. When Jesus is presented with a lie, with an idea that isn't based on truth, he doesn't engage in conversation with it. He doesn't try to reason with it. He just speaks God's truth back to it. And we could leave it there, really. I could stop talking and say something like, you know, it, it's a good idea to read the Bible some more so that we fill our minds and our hearts with God's truth so that when we encounter lies, we can respond as Jesus did. And that's a good thing. Like, I, I do believe that. That's a great place to start. But as I've been looking at this passage this past week or so, I've noticed something that I've not seen before, and I'm just going to share that with you. Okay, so bear with me on this one. Three times Jesus is tempted by the devil, and he answers back with a quotation from the Scriptures. And all three verses that he quotes from are taken from the same part of the Bible, a book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of instructions given to the people of Israel hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And the backstory to that particular book is that God had miraculously, miraculously rescued the nation of Israel from being slaves in Egypt. And he led them to a place, a land to call their own. But before they got there, they spent a period of 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And it's during this 40 years in the wilderness that the book of Deuteronomy is set, the same book from which Jesus is quoting when he is in the wilderness for 40 days. Hopefully you can see the connection. See, Jesus is brilliant. He isn't just quoting random bits of the Bible. He's making a very deliberate link between God's incredible rescue of Israel all those years ago and what he himself is now doing. I'll put simply, 
Jesus knows that his life is part of the bigger story of God restoring all things. And it's from the story that Jesus speaks back to the devil. So that was a little bit dense. If you didn't get that, don't worry. But it leads to my final question. Final question tonight is this. As we go into Lent together, the question isn't, can we recite bits of the Bible the way Jesus did? The question is, do we know the story we belong to? Do we know the story we belong to? Because in the words of Pete Hughes, he's a church leader down in London, he says this, the story you live in is the story you live out. The story you live in is the story you live out. And in our culture today, there's lots of competing stories going around. Stories such as, you're born, you grow old, and you die, and that's it. And there's nothing in between. All you have to do is have as much fun, as much pleasure as possible, because there is nothing else. The Bible tells an alternative story. The true story of the God who loves us, who sent his son Jesus into the world to save us, and who's inviting us into the adventure of living in his kingdom and co-working with him for the restoration of all things, which will go beyond death and into eternity. That's a better story. That is a better story, and that is the story that we're invited into. So as we go into this season, and whether or not you're going to celebrate Lent or observe Lent by giving something or take something up, the invitation is basically to spend more time in this story. To spend more time in this story. And there's all sorts of ways we can do this. There's all sorts of reading apps and Bible reading guides online, and they're all great. If there's one thing I could encourage you to do, I found this so useful as we go towards Easter, is just to spend time in the Gospels. The Gospels, the written accounts of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. They're short, they're easy to read, and they're all about Jesus. So why not take up that? Okay, I'm going to wrap up. Lent is almost here. And as we looked at the story of Jesus spending time in the wilderness, being tempted by lies and beating them with God's truth, the invitation for us in this season is not just to try and get a bit healthy or lose a few pounds or give up chocolate, but to draw closer to him. In the quiet place without distraction, in the letting go of lies that we're tempted to believe, and in replacing them with the truth of God's word and the story that he's inviting us into. Mm -hmm.